Greetings and welcome to UCP Focus, a new recurring format where we pick a topic brought up on the main podcast and give it our full undivided attention. From games to developers to hardware and peripherals, all will be possible targets. Now, this is not a task I will be taking on single-handedly. Because I am Cliff Foster, aka the amazing Cliff, ready for this new, new, new segment of UCP. Basically, this is the point where the three to 4,000 words of research I will put together on a single topic for the main podcast will actually get to be used. <laughs> I've always found that fascinating. As previously a fan of the previous incarnation of UCP, now I've done video game podcasts before, but you guys have to cover so much on a individual episode of Games Master. Now, working with you over the last four months, I can sell you. <laughs> I 100% believe every single one of those subjects you could easily go and write a book about. It's the research rabbit hole that the internet allows us to have because, okay, you started a Wikipedia page and where do those Wikipedia sources come from? Oh, look, it was that issue of Retro Gamer. Oh, mm. look, it was that issue of Edge. Oh, it appeared in Superplay. There were scans of Superplay out there. Oh, here's an IGN article that takes you on the Wayback Machine, the Internet Archive. Oh, YouTube videos. And so it just kind of, it becomes that kind of, you know, the evidence board with the red string. <laughs> I've had it before with my other podcast. Um, I've done many histories on uh, certain subjects. And you go, oh no, I now need these notes here. And, and we were just saying off mic that I do everything handwritten. Yet this, I've got everything open in pages in front of me. And I was like, oh, no, I'm going to have to change how I work with this. Because I'm, I'm in charge of the next UCP focus as well. But hey, it's the first one. It's my chance to cock it up. Cliff, <laughs> what are we covering? We are covering Bonk's Adventure, a.k.a. PC Genjin. So, to kind of frame it, in our main episode for this month, Game Center CX, one of the Game Boy games looked at in A Waste of Colour was the um, Game Boy port of PC Genjin, uh, otherwise known on that platform as GB Genjin, or Bonk's Adventure in the Western World. And there's some names we're going to be using fairly interchangeably. It will be PC Genjin, Bonk, PC Kid. All three refer to the same titular little cave dude character <laughs> that was really the mascot of the PC Engine. But to look at the history of this guy, we need to look at the PC Engine itself and specifically at one of its two parents because you had NEC who were doing a lot of the kind of the major hardware building, a lot of the chip procurement. Mm -hmm. But you also had Hudson, who were doing the specification, who were kind of working out what they wanted this machine to be. Now, Hudson 
were a software company originally. They got their first real taste of the console market when they were hired by Nintendo. Because Nintendo, like many console makers of the time, were looking to make their consoles more than just that. And one of the easiest ways to do that was to give them a programming language. Because long before Sony came out with the PlayStation Eurose or Microsoft did their own thing by having that kind of entire development framework that allowed people to create and publish games independently and upload them to the Xbox Live Marketplace, people like Nintendo and Sega with the Master System and the uh, SG-1000, 2000 to 3000, they wanted to have their own development environment. However, Nintendo weren't really specialists in that. So they brought Hudson Soft in to help them with their family basic system, which was essentially a keyboard add-on with some additional hardware and software for the Famicom in Japan that allowed you to program your own games and software. And I've actually seen one of these, not in the flesh, but kind of first-hand via photos, because friend of the podcast, Andy, who mm-hmm. I went to school with, actually owns one of these. Oh, that's pretty cool. I've never yeah. seen one. I've never yeah, seen it looks one really, really neat. It looks very fun. The keyboard itself looks gorgeous. Like, I just want that keyboard to use on the normal computer. It's got a re- it's got the Famicom styling on it. Oh, does it really? Has it got that that uh, those reds and the creamy whites as well? Yeah, it's, it's that combination. But while Hudson's involvement in this gave Nintendo access to their expertise, mm-hmm. it also let Hudson get some hands-on experience developing games for the Famicom system. And they actually became one of the first, if not the first, third-party publishers on the system. Uh, They released two games initially. One was a port of Load Runner, which I think over here at least is more widely known for being on the Commodore 64. And then later a port of Nuts and Milk, which was one of their own games that was originally released for the MSX and NEC PC systems. Both proved to be critically and commercially successful. So Hudson, having got a little bit of a taste of it, they decided to shift their focus to developing almost exclusively for the Famicom. Time went on, many titles were released under their name. But after three years they'd kind of begun to reach the limits of what they felt they could do with the Famicom. They were kind of butting up against the limitations of the system. They wanted to do more, particularly given the advancements of semiconductor technology, because by now we're kind of in 1986, 1987. We're actually getting very close to the launch of the Genesis and then the Super Famicom in real-world terms. They came up with some chip designs, they came up with some chip concepts, and they tried to sell Nintendo on them. And Nintendo were kind of like, no, we're we're fine. We've got our own plan. So the developers went to senior management at Hudson with their plans, because rather than this need for a machine coming from management down, it actually came from the developers up. These were developers Mm. that were hungry to develop on newer and better hardware. And despite the risk, the higher management proved receptive. And more crucially, NEC Home Electronics were also receptive to the idea of working on a new console. Now, for a lot of people, this would mean that developing for other consoles ended. Not for Hudson. They continued to develop for Nintendo. Like all the way through the life cycle of the PC engine, Hudson were developing for Nintendo and other consoles. Amazingly, Nintendo were aware of what Hudson were planning. And Hiroshi Yamuchi of Nintendo, allegedly, I say allegedly because I can't find anything in black and white, but allegedly went, okay, that's fine. The market's big enough for multiple players. You're doing your thing. 
we're doing our thing, which is astonishing given the ferocity of the console wars that would come at the beginning of the next decade. PC Engine. 590 Super Visual. Rock Channel Real Sound. New World of Sehatsu. PC Engine Zenkai. NEC. So, October 30th, 1987, the PC Engine came into being and was produced with their base mission statement of let's be the Famicom, but better than the current Famicom. <laughs> Bigger sprites, more sprites, more colours, better sound. And here's where we get some kind of Atari Jaguar level bullshit. Because you remember the maths about 64-bit. Some of you believe your system is the most advanced in the universe. Let's review the numbers. Sega Genesis is 16 bits. 3DO is 32 bits. The Atari Jaguar is 64 bits. Which is more advanced? Clifford! Hmm? Well, yeah, no, and I was reading into this because they went into the market, obviously, going, well, those consoles, they're 8-bit. This is 16-bit. And I did pull a face off. But is it? And I knew you would have the stats on this. <laughs> so the core CPU of the PC Engine was 8-bit. In fact, it was basically class comparable with the Famicom, just running at a higher speed. However, it had two 16-bit coprocessors taking care of the graphics. So it wasn't the Atari Jaguar that came up to this originally, then? <laughs> So I can see that there is both claims for this machine being 8-bit and 16-bit, or if you want to do multiplication math, 40-bit. 8 plus 16 plus 16 equals 40. I uh, Yeah, it's a weird old console, because if you have a look at the PC Engine, I mean, like the colour palette, it's like even when uh, the game that we're going to be discussing came out on the NES, the port couldn't uh, match the colour palette that came out for the PC Engine. So it is pretty evident it is a step up. Is it a 16-bit console, though? No, but also yes. (laughs) One of the things the PC Engine is still very well known for and still very well regarded for is shoot-em-ups. Shoot-em-ups where you've got lots of enemies, lots of gunfire, lots of sprites moving around the screen. The port of our type for the PC Engine, which we'll touch on a bit later, is still an astounding piece of coding and a piece of work even if there was at least one major drawback they had to find a way around but the pc engine also did something that was mind-blowing at the time it got smaller it was the size of three to four cd cases stacked on top of each other in fact you know they did the pc engine mini a few years ago yeah like like there's really not much in it because there isn't much you could shrink on the pc engine To speak a little on the name, the PC Engine was called that because it was designed to be the core of something more. This was designed to be the engine that powered everything else. Right from the off, they had idea for expansions. Uh, There was going to be a CD-ROM peripheral, which would actually appear and become one of the first CD-ROM add-ons for a console system. Mm -hmm. A portable fold-out LCD screen would also see the light of day. There were also plans for a keyboard, a board that would allow you to link it up to a PC. A modem and whilst those were produced they were produced in the same way that a lot of things like add-ons for the Jaguar were produced they were produced in quantities suitable for internal development and distribution very few of them made it outside of NEC and Hudson which is why when they do appear today they go for big bucks 
But the idea was that this thing was going to be a modular system. You would have the PC Engine at the core, PC Engine Core, which is actually one of the subtitles it gained as it was released around the world. And then you would add on the CD-ROM, you would add on the modem, you would maybe have the portable LCD screen there. Because I suppose if you linked it up to the PC, you wouldn't want to have a TV next to your PC, but you could have that little flip-up screen. Way ahead of its time, also not sure it actually helped the PC engine in the long run. One of the reasons it was able to keep so small was also because of the format the games came on. Mm. Because if you look at the Famicom, that was a relatively small cartridge. If you look at the NES, even though the circuit boards were the same size, they doubled the size of the cartridge because they were also in America trying to get away from the kind of uh, being associated with Atari. Mm-hmm. They were trying to liken the Nintendo Entertainment System more to a VCR, more to a, a video deck. And so actually having bigger cartridges came with that. Mm-hmm. Even by modern standards, the Hue card is tiny. It's a credit card. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're, they are so thin as well. I've seen a couple of Hue cards um, like in person and I'm like, oh, oh. It's, do you know what it reminded me of? It was when we f- you first ever got your first ever DS and having a look at the, how thin they are, um, it's got that similar feeling of, yeah, it's, it doesn't feel like they're durable. But actually, they're more durable in theory than Famicom cartridges or Mega Drive cartridges because there is much less to them. They are just small, rigid blocks because the majority of them exist outside of the console and are exposed to the air. The actual heat dissipation is much Mm. more efficient. Uh, There are no real obstructions. The idea for using cue cards actually came from an earlier Hudson Soft technology called the B-Card, which was used for the MSX computer. The Hue card could also be used down the line to expand the functionality of the PC engine. Uh, It was used, much like the cartridge port was at the back of the Saturn, Mm -hmm. to add more memory, particularly when the PC engine CD-ROM came along. And I think the last one released was an arcade card, which again was a boost of memory and cache. Mm -hmm. But the PC engine had come out. Initial lineup of software wasn't like, there were no massive names bar one, but they were there to show off what the console could do in terms of scope of games. So we had a Kung Fu title, which had really large animated sprites. I mean, the NES was never the best for beat-em-ups, but this was throwing sprites around comparable to what would be being seen in Street Fighter or similar. Uh, We had Kato-chan and Ken-chan, which was a rebranded Wonder Boy, which was there to show off the graphical fidelity because it was based on celebrities. And therefore, if you wanted the people to be recognisable, this was showing the power of the PC engine there. Victory Run, High Speed Racing, and Shanghai brought a port of Mahjong because every system in Japan (laughs) needs a Mahjong game. But also it showed that they could actually transfer PC games over quite successfully because it was a port. And the last notable launch title was also a port. It was a big arcade port. It was R-Type. It is still widely considered one of the best ports of IRAM's arcade original. It reproduced the coin-op with an immense amount of clarity, but there was a catch. You see, those Hue cards were very cool, but they were also quite expensive. And at the time, the relative cost meant they couldn't afford to put all of the game on one card. 
So you've got R-Type Volume 1 and R-Type Volume 2, with the first four levels on Volume 1 and the rest of the levels on Volume 2. Did it affect many sales then, um, selling, you know, because surely they would have to sell those both separately? Oh yeah, absolutely. They did eventually get combined together, particularly with the CD down the line. But initially, with that initial launch, you had people queuing up and they'd be going, okay, here's my PC engine. (laughs) Here's my controller, which comes with it. Here's the multi-tap, which I will need for two-player because weird quirk of the PC engine. It only had one controller port on the front. You needed a multi-tap for two-player. Well, there's not a lot of space. Well, not a lot of space on it, to be honest. (laughs) There is that, but I'm still not sure why (laughs) they made that decision because the the controller connectors were small. They were like um, small DIN connectors. They they could have fit two on the side. Okay, okay. There's no excuse. (laughs) Yeah. But it didn't really damage it. It was a very, very popular launch title and Mm. people were just going, yeah, I'll get both. Not only was the system and its initial tranche of games well received by the public, it actually acted as a big advertising sign to other developers. Because check this list out of people that developed for the PC Engine, particularly early years. Namco, Konami, Capcom. Yeah. Sega! What? (laughs) Pardon? (laughs) Sega ported some of their arcade titles to the PC Engine. Oh, wow. This is because obviously Sega had quite a different business model in the 80s, particularly in Japan, where their master system was failing to meet expectations, which really unfortunately feels like the story of Sega in Japan, (laughs) because it happened with the Mega Drive. In fact, PC Engine, which when it was immediately released, outsold the Famicom in Japan. Like it just immediately became the top selling console. And it continued to sell well enough through its lifespan that by the end of 1994, when it was at end of life, it would actually still sit ahead of the Mega Drive in terms of Japanese sales. Going by the figures I've seen. That's 1994. That is... It's damning of, you know, we we always think that Sega's fall from grace was always Sega of America, Sega of Japan. They don't get along. Oh, they're going to make the Saturn. One wants to go with... um, silicon graphics one wants to keep on and do their own thing one wants to get sony involved one wants to keep on do their own thing and actually looking at this it was a it was a slow death it wasn't a quick death as we might see it in the west because in the west obviously i i believe i'm correct in saying this but the mega drive outsold the snes yeah certainly in some regions absolutely it's coming soon to a television set near you an incredibly advanced video game system. Are you ready for these amazing graphics and vibrant colors? Can you handle the speed and the power? How about the capacity for stereo sound and for five players? You decide before September, because it's coming. TurboGrafx-16, the higher energy video game system. Games sold separately. Speaking of the West, very briefly address the elephant in the room. The PC Engine was released in America, TurboGrafx-16, TurboGrafx Duo. There were a number of different flavours. Some of them brought the core PC Engine and the CD-ROM together. Uh, There was an actual performance-boosted, genuine 16-bit PC Engine that came out. Only like five games were released for it, but it was backwards compatible with all the original games. So some people bought that as the way of getting the best of both worlds. There was also a handheld version and oh, there were there? a couple of yeah yeah with a built-in lcd screen oh i have to try and find one of them 
you will be paying through the nose for it. Uh, but there were a number of different versions released in Japan and in America, different flavors, different uh, capacities, different visions even of the CD-ROM. However, when it came to the UK, we never got an official release. There were some imports and there were some large-scale imports with European versions. And I even remember seeing the PC Engine being advertised in Toys R Us. Oh, wow. I would argue that I think the PC Engine probably got more press over here, mainstream press, with the release of the PC Engine Mini in 2020. That's weird, isn't it? Mostly, like the Neo Geo, it existed in import sections of magazines. It was one of those kind of semi-unobtainable white whales. And price-wise, particularly because it was all imports, it also existed within the same kind of upper echelons of price that, uh, that, the, that the Neo Geo would exist, although the games weren't quite as expensive. So the PC Engine was out there, it was immediately outselling the Famicom, and it was comfortably sitting around the number two position of consoles in Japan. It existed mainly on a mixture of original titles and relatively faithful arcade ports, but the one thing the machine lacked was a de facto mascot of identity. Someone to hang their hat on, as it were. Someone who could be to them as Mario was to Nintendo and Sonic would be to Sega once they'd given up on Alex Kidd. They were still trying to make Alex Kidd happen. Alex Kidd was not happening. Remember, folks, if you want to take on the We Hate Alex Kidd podcast, please do write in with a stamped address envelope to Everyone Hates Alex Kidd. (laughs) And so entered PC Genjin, a.k.a. Mm -hmm. PC Kidd, a.k.a. Bonk, the little caveman who could. Following the launch of the PC Engine in Japan, much like nowadays, a number of magazines and publications would spring up to support the platform and base themselves around it. Mm-hmm. One of these was PC Engine Monthly, Gekken PC Engine, and every month it would feature a series of comic strips to promote upcoming games. So not just adverts, but kind of little four to eight panel comic strips to go, this is the new shoot 'em up that's coming up. This is the new sports game. This is Namco's latest Splatterhouse. You know, something to promote those. But in 1989, this would shift and the focus would be a new character whose name was PC Genjin, which is, even in Japan, a pun or a wordplay on the console name. The character was designed by Kabuto Oki of the Red Company and quickly he became a hit with fans of the magazine and fans of the console to a level where Red Company and Hudson realised they needed a game and they needed one fast because a lot of people thought that this character was appearing to advertise that he had a game coming out because that is what that comic strip had been doing up until that point. Not only did buyers of the magazine believe this, but other magazines believed this and started saying that there was a new game coming out for the PC Engine starring this little big-headed cave dude. So Hudson Soft and Red began work. They began work with Atlas, a name that is very familiar right up to this day, although is now owned by Sega. Mm-hmm. And they subcontracted them in because they needed to move quickly. How quickly? Three to four months. From wow. the time they decided the game to getting the game on the shelf. That is a turnaround. That is a, a hell of a turnaround. But between them, they did it. And a few short months later, the PC Engine had its mascot as it burst onto the scene in his first game. TurboGrafx-16 is about to knock video games back into the Stone Age. 
It's 10,000 years ago. You're a cave dude. You are carnivorous. You've got to bonk 28 stages of prehistoric bad guys to rescue your excellent looking princess. And you've only got one weapon. Bonk's Adventure, only on the TurboGrafx-16 system. So, Bonk's Adventure, or PC Genjin known elsewhere, we follow our little protagonist friend, little caveman slash baby child slash... Uh, he's, a, he's an interesting character model. Three-year-old moon boy. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> Where his head definitely outweighs his body, let's say. Because if you didn't already know, the main, main game mechanics of this, yes, Alex uh, Alex Kidd could punch. Mario could jump on people. Um, but, uh, Sonic could run very, very fast. However, our friend Bonk can headbutt things very, very well. Is he Glaswegian? <laughs> He's definitely got a hardened, polished head, you know. Um, and as you go through the levels, basically the main mission of this is, is even though it doesn't explain this actually in the game itself until the very end, is that you need to go and save your girlfriend slash seal friend slash the princess Zar from the big baddie, which is King Drool, uh, who has, for some reason, got a base on the moon. However, what he's done is he's possessed princesses are to be able to take over these these baddies that you go off through the first four levels you go off each level and to go and face off against a boss which when you defeat them it then stops them being possessed and then at the end for some reason they get repossessed and then you take them out and then find out that the fifth baddie is in fact the princess are who tells you that the king's rule is up up in the moon base because you know why why are they on a moon base when this is based in uh like a caveman world i don't know well i mean technically the moon is princess czar's like home so she's actually been kicked out yeah it's a bit weird because all of the bad like all the baddies when you defeat them they're like oh we'd, we'd really like to go home now back to the moon and in fact when you go and defeat the king drool they all just like have this weird animation segment where they travel back up to the moon as well and the as i said the princess czar turns into a pink seal with a crown who for some reason reminds me of the princess and never-ending story i don't know quite how um but it's it's a lot of critical acclaim it's easy to see why Mm. Like, if you look at its contemporaries, if you look at the other platform games that were around in 1989, mm-hmm. this game is really, really nicely put together. The sprites are large and plentiful. The worlds mm-hmm. are big and detailed. It sounds great. Bonk himself is actually a surprisingly complex character to master mm-hmm. because while you can just run along and headbutt and jump and dive headbutt, there are mechanics where you can kind of tap the button mid jump and spin and perpetuate yourself and actually fly and if you use one of the built-in turbo buttons <laughs> the, on the pc engine levels <laughs> oh yeah you could you can in the sequel actually they redesigned the levels and it is blazing because i've had a little play of uh most of the bond games and it's definitely evident in the sequel they went ah people are just literally using that turbo button to travel across um, what i really enjoyed about it because i said I've, I've played a couple of versions i played 
this version and the actual the control mechanics itself because every everything at this point needs a gimmick and obviously with him as we were saying glass region headbutting everything but it's when you pick up the pieces of meat so if he picks up one piece of meat he turns into a more hardened version of himself he picks up another piece of meat and it gives him invulnerability for a certain period of time I think it's actually quite a good mechanic. And also, he actually possesses something that a Sonic character later on would possess, and that is climbing up walls, which instead of Knuckles climbing up with his fists, he climbs up with his teeth. It makes my face hurt watching him do this, but he just bites his way up the walls. We look at the actual character model himself, and when he climbs up the wall with his teeth or anything like that, like, I like the artwork of him. He's, like, a bit weird. Like, when he dies, he sort of falls on the floor and starts, like, foaming at the mouth, which is, it's a bit weird. You get un- unlimited continues with it, but every time he does it, it's like, ugh, ugh. His design is incredibly Japanese. It's something it they try to get away from with the Western artwork a bit. With mixed success, because you can change the artwork on the box all you want. The game is still going to look like the game. And one of the things I love about this is this game does feel very much like a comic strip come to life. Yes, Like there, There's so. certain effects that happen, particularly when you, um, you come up against big bosses in their eyes and the way the teardrops come out. Yep. And I'm like, I've been seeing that. I've been seeing that in Japanese comic strips since, you know, I first started to get get them when Manga Mania came out, when all those early uh, Viz comics came over and stuff like that. But you mentioned the invulnerability. The invulnerability is a great one because, again, graphically, he changes. He doesn't just flash like a Mario or a Sonic. He changes colour. He changes form. He changes expression. Veins start to pop out on his head. And all of this is being done on an 8 slash 16-bit system in 1989. So it came out and it sold insanely well. When it was launched in the US the year after, it mm-hmm. became the top-selling title since the system had launched. Oh, wow. Everyone needed the adventure of Bonk. And because Hudson Soft were software developers by trade, even though this was their system's mascot, they didn't feel the need to kind of restrain him to a singular platform. Mm. Now, that's not the first time it's happened, because if we go way back in time, Mario and Donkey Kong appeared on other systems. But can you imagine Nintendo doing that with the Mario of the Famicom era, of Super Mario Brothers, particularly of Super Mario Brothers 2 and 3, of them just going, yeah, you can put him on the Atari. I mean, going back to the origins of Doom, can you imagine them letting the Doom lads port it to the PC efficiently? Yeah. It's it's one of those things. It, it, in the past, it hasn't worked, you know, that w- when you've they've allowed, like, especially Nintendo, the, the prime example, which a lot of people were more likely to be saying out loud now, is when Nintendo entrusted Mario with Philips, uh, Mario and Zelda, but obviously you had at this time, or you would have a little bit later, Mario Goes Missing, which is an odd affair. But that solely stays, even though Mario Goes Missing is a bit of an odd game, an educational game, it stayed solely on the snares, at least. Whereas Bonk went all over the place. It didn't happen mm. immediately. In fact, it wouldn't happen until 1992. But Cliff, 
by this point, we've got all different platforms out there. We've got the Game Boy, which Bonk would make his way to, and we'll talk about that in a bit. We had the Famicom, we had the Super Famicom, we had the Mega Drive. Where was the first place that Bonk landed other than the PC Engine? The Amiga. The Amiga in Europe in Mm. a port called BC Kid, developed by Factor 5 who you will be very familiar with. Yep, creating the uh, Rogue Squadron games. (laughs) Now, the Amiga had no shortage of platformers. Mm. But even then, thanks in part to the core mechanics and the quality of the port, Mm -hmm. people took notice of this. Do you think this is because what you were just saying with the PC Engine not really getting a UK release? Is it to open up to a larger market in in Europe? I don't think so. I mean, maybe Hudson thought, well, we've got limited kind of availability in Europe. We're not planning to launch officially in the UK, not in any meaningful way at this point. So, sure, we can license this character out. We can allow this company to do a port of it. Um, They must have shown something that impressed Hudson Soft, and I'm glad they did because... I've played this port, and bar the music being quite different, mm-hmm. like the music feels like it may have fallen in from Chuck Rock a little bit. Mm-hmm. Game is solid. In fact, graphically, the game is above PC Genjin. Like there's some parallax background scrolling. It moves very, very well. There's a slight floatiness, which is something that I found with most Amiga platformers other than maybe Zool. But it plays really, really well and is very, very faithful when compared to the PC Engine original. It got good reviews and it sold really, really well. And again, part of that has to be down to the work that Factor 5 did because they are a very competent software house. But also I think part of that has to be down to the appeal of the core gameplay and the character and his portrayal as dictated by Hudson and Red and Atlas from the PC Engine original. Now that game was a direct port of bonk's adventure and as you said it only had slight differences now one game as we learned only a couple of weeks ago on the main timeline that did change quite significantly was the game boy adaptation gb genjin um it was a complete original game it's obviously had the same core mechanics as the previous games. Um, I've played it. I've got. I've got. Uh, got it on my Game Boy uh, just off of camera, which always helps on an audio basis. It was a bit harder than, let's say, the previous uh, incarnations. But I mean, even the baddies, everything. It was a complete new game. In fact, it actually had more in common with the de facto sequel Bonk's Revenge mm-hmm. or PC Genjin 2 in that it could be seen as a continuation of the original game and did actually use the sprite from PC Genjin 2 or rather a Game Boy interpretation of it But before we get onto PC Genjin 2, there is one last hurrah for the first PC Genjin, or as it would now be known, FC Genjin, came out on the Famicom, summer of 1993. Now, you can see this as either a way to milk money out of envious Famicom owners, or to try and show the superiority of the now-aging PC Engine. 
But basically, it was very much a stripped back game. Mm-hmm. The sprites were smaller, they lacked clarity and detail, the levels were simpler, the sound was far inferior to its originator, and it is actually regarded to be one of the worst of the PC Genjin games across all platforms because everything about this is lesser. Even to this case of that it's harder to play because uh, as part of the sort of core mechanics of this game is that what Bonk will do is he'll jump on flowers and these flowers will either produce meat because science uh hearts to give him health but it's they do different things and in fact there's ones what aren't at which aren't animated later on and you know there's there's things that these these are core mechanics of the game but because of the lack of detail on this nes version you could not tell the difference between them you couldn't tell the difference between these different flowers so you would jump on the flower and there'd be no thought process behind it be like okay is this going to produce a ghost or is this going to give me or is this going to give me meat i mean the simple way to tell is look for the flowers that aren't animated very true but i'll be honest the first like half a dozen or so times of playing pc genjin i didn't realize that like (laughs) i obviously learned which flowers had the demons inside but i didn't twig why my first half an hour playing PC Genshin, I think it was on the Game Boy version. Uh, I literally just, <laughs> I was just smashing the headbutt. That's all you do. You go, oh, oh, it's a, it's a mechanic. Let's just milk this, and you end up just headbutting everything. It doesn't matter. You, there's no thought process of, oh, should I really take out this plant? Oh no, no, it's there. It's going to be taken down. <laughs> One slight oddity on the Famicom version which it shares with the Game Boy and also with the Amiga version, is that the Bonk sprite Mm. is based on PC Genjin 2, which to talk about, we're going to need to skip back to 1991. (laughs) (laughs) The timeline of these games is quite complicated. One, because it's documented, but it's not documented to the same level that a Mario or Sonic would be. There is actually a pretty good PC Engine Bible out there. However, it's pretty good in French, and in English it's mm, because they essentially auto-translated it and didn't do a very good job of proofreading it. To the point where I almost bought it in preparation for this and future episodes where I'm sure we're going to talk about the PC Engine. Mm-hmm. And I just saw so many people going, it's not only inaccurate, there's actually text missing. Oh, really? Yeah. And so I'm just like, ugh. I almost might pick up the French version and then just use Google Translate on it myself because at least then I can interpret via Google Translate and my own very flimsy grasp on the French language what it's actually saying. But PC Genjin 2, Bonk's Revenge, the first of two sequels to appear on the PC Engine, this did something that all good sequels should do. It takes everything you did in the first game mm-hmm. and ups the ante. So the graphics are brighter, the gameplay's better, as I may have alluded to earlier. You can't just smash that turbo button and fly across each level. Um, and it's widely considered, actually, the best out of the uh, PC Genjin games uh, slash Bonk games. Um, I don't understand why it's called Bonk's Revenge, though, because it's technically not his revenge. It's King Drool's revenge because King Drool is back. It just literally follows that thing of, right, 
I'm going to fracture the moon again. So he's gone back to the moon because, yet again, this is based in prehistoric time. Why do they keep going to the bloody moon? I don't get it. But, yeah, so he fractures the moon, takes the princess, and basically divides the kingdom into two parts. So off he comes again. And that's our little boy, Bonk. Now, in the gameplay itself, it's got numerous hidden levels. Now, in this, when I've had a play of it, it reminds me of a Hudson game. Now, everyone knows that I might have a love for a certain console. Now, Hudson very much were involved with the N64 with a certain game franchise that still goes on to this day, which is Mario Party. Now, all of these little hidden areas are very similar and the same ilk that we get in Mario Party. Like, there's one where you have to pump up a balloon as quickly as possible by jumping up and down, headbutting down on this um, this pump. There's, there's certain things that are so Mario Party-esque and you can sort of see Hudson's fingers now on Mario Party. You can see where that influence came from. You mentioned that this is kind of considered to be one of the best in the series, if not the de facto best. Mm. I would entirely agree with that because one of the nice things about this month of January is these are the episodes we've known we were going to do for the longest. Mm-hmm. We have knew we were going to do Game Center CX and we knew we were going to do Bonk. Therefore, I have had the most run-up possible. So I have played every game that we're talking about here and PC Genjin 2 is the one I keep coming back to. This is the Sonic 2 of the uh, argument. This is the Mario Brothers 3 of it. It's It's got that feel to it that this is the, the pinnacle of bonk. <laughs> they knew what... The thing is, it would be easy to say is now they know what they're doing. Amazingly, they knew what they were doing in the first one. Again, mm-hmm. that three to four month turnaround, it's amazing how polished that first game was. But just that little bit longer, that time to refine things, to remove some of the little getchas out of there like you mentioned the ability to headbutt spin across entire levels and again this was ported to america as bonk's revenge pc genjin 2 in japan bonk's revenge in the us and most of the rest of the world but there was one somewhat bizarre change because in japan in his agitated form he could now become kawaii like he he became cutesy wearing makeup and showering blinking hearts as he spins in america they went no we are not that comfortable in our sexuality (laughs) he's going to be angry and spit fireballs i haven't seen the two different versions actually i've only seen the thing where he spits fireballs it's one of the things that I've flipped between the different versions because I've been playing a lot of them either on the PC Engine Mini that I've got or the Ambernak handheld because that was the easiest way to get through them as quickly as possible and play them as much as possible while I was traveling over the Christmas period. But both of them actually make it quite easy to access the different versions. <laughs> But other than some compilation kind of pack-in CD releases for the PC Engine CD, the last gasp for bonk on the PC Engine was PC Engine 3, which came right towards the end of the PC Engine's lifespan. Mm -hmm. So we're talking start of Q2 93. SNES and Mega Drive were themselves aging. The PlayStation and the Saturn were just over a year away. 
And despite this being a bit of a swan song, and despite it having many things that are not great, this game did add one new important feature to the PC Engine roster of Bonk games, and that is multiplayer. Now, this is something we talked about earlier. Multiplayer is an odd one on the PC Engine, because mm. even to have two players, you require a multi-tap. I still don't understand the logic behind that decision, especially given that even going back to the simple TV games with their Pong variants, two paddles, two players, you know, it was it was a core thing to have two players on a home console. But leaving aside the multi-tap weirdness, two players could now headbutt their way through the various puzzling platform levels, although weirdly with the shared health bar. Yeah, that baffled me, because you've got the two characters, you've got Bonk and female Bonk, and yeah, you but you share the same health, which is a bit odd. I can see that starting fights. I can genuinely see that starting arguments of one person's doing really well and the other is just tanking it continually. I don't know, because you remember the fights that used to have on Streets of Rage at the time, where it would be like, no, 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 that's my piece of ham. No, that's my knife. That's my crowbar. It's the same sort of concept as that, but yeah, at least then, theoretically, it removes the, uh, the argument of whose health is it? It's both of ours. Thankfully, despite the shared health, the game actually was considerably easier with two players. Mm-hmm. And aside from that, the other big innovation was... I mean, Cliff, do you want your bonk to be bigger? (laughs) Where would you like it? I can make some suggestions. Or if you want it to be smaller, that can also be achieved because different coloured candies around the stages can either make your bonk massive or a shrinky dink, uh, depending on whether you need to climb massive obstacles or get through small gaps. This was, again, a kind of a weird late-day flex from the PC Engine because the PC Engine just threw those massive sprites around without really giving a shit. Mm -hmm. Again, in a way that sometimes the SNES would struggle to do. Now the SNES could do Mode 7, it could do all that stuff, but it still struggled sometimes with lots of sprites on the screen and and dynamic scaling, unless it was using Mode 7 trickery. But that's where things start to fall apart, because despite the two-player and despite the grow-and-shrink mechanic... The levels don't back it up. And some of that is actually highlighted by the new mechanic because Mm. some bits you need to be big to get over or some bits you need to be small to get over. For that, you need to have the right suite. One hit can nullify the effect of the suites. So there's a lot of back and forth. And sometimes when you go and you get the suite, then you get to the part which requires the beginning. To actually get there, you hit obstacles which showed that the levels weren't always being fully designed with this mechanic in mind. No, because all it took was one hit and you would go back to normal size bonk. And additionally, the level settings itself. Now, previous games had always been fantastical prehistoric slash moon, but everything was kind of like, even the bits that had things like trains, it had that Flintstones gimmick to it a bit you know it was like oh well, it is a train but it's a prehistoric train mm-hmm. cool but this game you had modern warehouses and and cityscapes and other settings that really didn't fit the mythology of the first two games and a lot of this can actually be traced back to one fairly simple fact when it came to the pc engine originators bonk had been in the hands of hudson and atlas 
This time, Atlas were nowhere to be seen, and Hudson had reached out to a third company called AI Limited. See, even back in the 90s, bloody AI. <laughs> but at least then, because th this a lot of these core mechanics and a lot of this where it was based in cityscapes and the modern day, at least that was explained in the latter game, uh, which was Super Bonk or Genjin BC Kid. Um, it, it, at least with that one, it, it explains that he went back in time and he was cap he, he was put into a little domey thing and he was sent back in time to or sent to different times. Apologies, forwards in time. That's how time works, Clifford. The prehistoric age was definitely before modern day. At least with that, they explained it. But this, they don't at all. They just sort of just throw these levels in there. And so, sadly, with that kind of question mark entry, that's how Bonk's Adventures finished on the PC Engine. And what would follow would primarily exist on the Nintendo family of handhelds and consoles. And that would include a port that, much like the original, is also not a port <laughs> of Bonk's Revenge. Completely different game again. But I've got to admit, it is easier to play because the original uh, Bonk's Adventure on the Game Boy, I think the collision detection sometimes isn't there with your headbutts. This one's a little bit of a smoother ride. It feels a lot better. It's a fine title. It's an okay title. It doesn't necessarily bring anything super new. It does use a lot of ideas that have happened elsewhere in the series and bring them together in new ways. But it is a fun game to play. I mean, that's the thing is even PC Genjin 3 is still fun to play. Mm -hmm. It's just not as fun. I mean, there are no truly bad PC Genjin titles, to my mind. There are those that are disappointing. The Famicom one is one of them. We've already mm -hmm. discussed that. But the other is his only venture to the kind of realm of arcade games and the coin-guzzling quarters with the somewhat confusingly titled Bonk's Adventure slash PC Genjin hyphen special arcade adventure. It was weird to bring this sort of game to um, the arcade, and I think they're gonna. They used um, this time. They used uh, Kaneko as the developer, rather than various teams that they made console versions for, or even Sega. You know, Sega were huge in the arcade market at the moment, but no, they went to Kaneko, and the actual sort of let's say Mario-ish style to the games where it was to get from one point to another which bonk wasn't you know bonk used to take you off on random adventures to go and do mini games they weren't to get from point a to gate b they were to you know they took you on a bit of a less linear adventure multiple paths through the level yeah always always different ways even if in the original part of that is just cheating and holding down the auto fire button to spin over the entire level <laughs> or even you know the the uh the last game that we just spoke about that started to introduce puzzles with the element of making him bigger and smaller this one completely went away for that and in fact almost went away from what you've come to know with bonk with the basis of the meat situation where if he gets two lots of meat he goes invisible no it went completely different path 
And then when you completed three, because you could choose which level that you wanted to do. And once you completed three of the levels, you could choose from a mixture of bosses. Now, a lot of these bosses were like, they, were, they weren't as intuitive as, let's say, because uh, so, that's one thing that these, this whole series is praised for. The bosses that you face at the end, very, very clever mechanics, very clever ways of taking them out. This didn't feel like what people have become to love with the Bonk franchise. This game is very much Bonk in name only. Mm. I mean, it did also give us a two-player mode. It did also introduce Bonkette, who would then later appear elsewhere for PC Genjin 3. So kind of the arcade version did provide that inspiration. But it was a speed run. There was a high score element, but it was about completing the levels as quickly as possible. They were much shorter levels. You mentioned some of the Mario elements. There was even a gate at the end. Yeah. This did not feel like a bonk game. And diehard fans recognised that and therefore didn't turn out for it. I do think there could have been a good bonk arcade game. Platformers in arcades are difficult. Yeah. But I think there could have been a better game than this. Or maybe, maybe this would have been the time to take Bonk to a new type of game. There were a couple of different Bonk types of games. There was one that was a bit more kind of like a board game, a bit like one of the other titles we talked about in mm -hmm. Game Center CX. And there was plans to have a PC Genjin RPG Genjin. There was going to be an RPG game. But I look at this as going, you missed the opportunity to make a PC Genjin side-scrolling beat-em-up. Or I was more thinking like a Donkey Kong-esque game because he's already got the cool mechanics that he can climb with his teeth. Why don't you do some form of climbing, avoiding the obstacles? Go a bit more old school with it. Yeah. Bye, Hada-san! So then we come on to, obviously, they're done with the PC Engine. PC Engine is pretty much end of life, although mm -hmm. games would continue to be released for it in various ways up until the end of the 90s. But then again, the same sort of level of diehard support was shown for things like Saturn and indeed the Super Famicom in Japan. You know, people don't let go of their favourites quite so easily. But Hudson were like, yep, time to move on, time to hitch our wagon to something else. And that something else was the Super Famicom. Because I was alluding to earlier that I do really like uh, the Bonk's Revenge. However... I really enjoyed uh, Super Bonk as well, because Super Bonk took everything from the third iteration of this, but it made it slightly better in my point of view, that you can make yourself big and small. And in fact, the baddies, if they got to the uh, treats as well, the baddies got to those candies as well beforehand, they could go big or small, which I really enjoyed. I really enjoyed that aspect of it. But if you, let's say you took on the meat and went bigger that 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 sounds all sorts of weird but you you take the meat and get bigger like he could turn into this weird chicken thing at one point so he's got his i would say like phil Mich mitchell-esque head on that he looks like you know when you take the first bit of meat and he's gotten harder 
and he then grows a chicken's body at the same time and then if you go to the last stages of this he will then become a giant dinosaur or even a godzilla-esque character i i just i really enjoyed it and i think that the the character the sprites the characters they they definitely did um with the mode seven i think it did very much bring some of those bosses to life as well there was a lot of bosses with sort of floating 2.5 d figures going around them and things like that i think it was it very much found its home on the uh, on the super famicom there's a lot to like in super bonk super genjin bc kid the, the first Super Nintendo game, which was also the last one to be brought to the Western world, to America. It's quite small quantities. In fact, even nowadays, it's still easier to find a Japanese copy than it is an English language copy. And there were some truly bonkers ideas. Huh? Bonkers. bonkers. Hashtag yeah. great joke. It was still an AI-limited game. And I think they maybe thought, well, let's just be more weird because that's what people want. But they didn't understand when the right time to be weird was. Like, there was just something about the Atlas games made with Hudson that showed they understood it. Like, it's kind of the difference between composing a song and performing a a cover of a song. You don't need to understand the musical composition to perform it. But if you do understand it, it means you can give it your own spin, your own flavour, your own interpretation, or you know why certain notes are played louder than others. You know, there's more to it than just the scientific nature of it. And it's a shame because, yeah, I love some of the absolute lunacy that happens in this game and some of the stuff that uh, really does take advantage of that mode seven, of that colour palette. Even playing this again, I played this game and I just played it going, I kind of want to go back to PC Genjin 2. <laughs> I get what you mean, because I, I still now am puzzling in my head if it was a chicken or some form of prey mantis that you sort of convert into when you're large with the first bit of meat. It's just a bit, as you said, it went it went too far. As I said, he was always a bit... I love the artwork with Bonk, always, always will. But it does go a bit too far when it gets weird on this one. But there was one more entry in Bonk's canon, one more for the Super Nintendo, and that was Super Genjin 2, no Super Bonk 2, no Bonk's Revenge 2, because this game was Japan only. And it's a shame because it did see a bit of a return to form. And part of that is because while Atlas was still missing, this game did come back into the hands of Hudson, back into the people that helped originate this series. And they they stripped back some of the elements that had perhaps been less well implemented. The big small was gone. And a lot of the elements of the first Super Bonk were gone. And instead, they looked to bring in lots of power-ups and forms from the first two PC Engine games as well as the Game Boy games, the kind of the ports, not ports, because actually original games. They even took in some stuff from BC Genjin, from the arcade game, and brought in some new puzzle-solving mechanics themselves. And with it, they brought a slight tweak to the graphical stylings. They produced something that, via its uh, kind of cut-out nature, actually has more in common with the Yoshi's Island 
than it does the original Bonk series. It is probably the best non-PC Engine title, Mm -hmm. in my mind. It's it's worth tracking down. It's worth tracking down and giving a go. It can be hard as... Because there are no concessions made to a non-Japanese audience. But it is a lot of fun. It looks great. The music is also really nice. The music takes advantage of some of those things that the Super Nintendo could do that others couldn't. It's a shame more people didn't see it because, of course, by the time this came out, the Super Nintendo was on its way out too. Indeed, because you said about Yoshi's story and how it had that same feel. Well, Bonk wasn't meant to stop there. Bonk, in fact, was meant to come back for Ultra Genjin. Bonk 64. So there are images up online showing what Bonk would look like on the N64 because in late 1994, as many Japanese developers were doing, they knew that Silicon Graphics were coming on board with Nintendo. They knew that the Ultra 64 was in development. And Hudson themselves in 1995, uh, in cooperation with uh, AI Studios, uh, they started developing what would become the Bonk game for the Ultra 64. Now, the problem is is that they couldn't quite understand how Bonk would work in a 3D environment. Because as I've discussed on my podcast, separate to uh, UCP, is that there were so many games that struggled with this. Um, be that Earthworm Jim, be that Bubsy. There were so many of these early 90s mascots that fell short. Arguably, Sega still struggle with that today with Sonic. Yeah. Like every Sonic 3D game has mixed, you know, it mixed reviews. Yes. Even the great ones will still something won't quite feel right and arguably the way Nintendo got it right was by actually not trying to replicate the core 2D experience in 3D and just coming up with something new that Mm -hmm. fit the world and they couldn't quite gather how they were going to do this and another one that struggled for a long period of time would actually be the one that is suspected to have taken a lot of what they were developing for Bonk and that was Bomberman Heroes It is sad that we never saw a 3D bonk, but at the same time, as you said with Sonic, that my favourite Sonic game of the last 20 years is Sonic Mania. There is a reason with that, it's because it adds something new to it, but it sticks to what I like of a Sonic game. Sonic Adventure, don't get me wrong, I'm not going to be Luke with this. I enjoy Sonic Adventure, I enjoy Sonic Adventure 2, but since those games, they have struggled to nail it. So there's a part of me that is glad that, well, I say that's where Bonk's story finished, because technically, that's not where Bonk's story's finished. So much of Bonk's story after the Super Nintendo is things that almost happened. There was almost a Bonk-based title for the Virtual Boy, Mm -hmm. which never happened. There was almost an RPG game, which never happened. There was almost a Nintendo 3DS game, which never happened. There was a new game that actually was seen in quite large levels of detail Mm -hmm. called Bonk, 
Brink of Extinction, which was announced for the PlayStation Network, so PS3, Xbox Live Arcade. It was going to be on the Wii platform and also the Nintendo 3DS and would have included cooperative play, but it was cancelled. It's a real, you know, not with a bang, but with a wet fart ending for Bonk, particularly when we get onto where he is now. Mm-hmm. But before we get there, we've talked a bit about the different names because in Japan it was M Genjin. So PC Genjin, which not only stood for PC from PC Engine, but also stood for Pithankathropus Computerus, <laughs> which do, it, it, it does actually work. It does actually mean kind of like, you know, That's fake primitive Latin. man. I was about to say, is that fake Latin at the end though, computerus? I mean, I mean yeah, it is. But the first <laughs> bit, it does actually work. You know, it, 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 it does kind of work. For FC, for the Famicom, they went with the same ending, but with Freak Theropus. And for GB, for GB Genjin, GB doesn't mean anything. <laughs> <laughs> they they went, you get the point. <laughs> We're spending too much on marketing teams coming up with this. Stop it. It just means Game Boy. Go away. <laughs> and on the Super Famicom, it was Choi Genjin for Super. So Super Genjin. So PC Genjin, FC Genjin, GB Genjin, Choi Genjin. And the character himself was also occasionally referred to as PC Kid. In America and elsewhere in the world, he was either referred to as Bonk or BC Kid. Mm. Like that Amiga game, that was released as BC Kid. That wasn't released as Bonk's Adventure in the UK. That was BC Kid. But for the most part, they did have that kind of two letters word. That was the idea. We talked about that very Japanese manga style that kind of the, the, the permeates all the games, permeates all the Japanese advertising. In America, they kind of tried to make him more edgy and aggressive. So advert showing him destroying Super Mario Brothers 3. But the problem is you can have that on the box and you can have that on the adverts, but then you start the game and it's still the little dude that <laughs> rages when he eats meat or foams at the mouth when he gets knocked unconscious. It's that weird westernization of very Japanese design, something that existed all the way through, I think, up until relatively present day. Certainly all the way up through some of the PlayStation era, where they just don't quite trust in the ability for the game to speak to itself without being westernized, at least in marketing terms. So where is Bonk now? So Hudson Softs, they've got... They've got a close working relationship with Konami. Like, Konami actually had business interests in Hudson because Hudson floated themselves on the stock exchange turn of the millennium. And Konami purchased stocks around 2001. They then purchased more in 2005. And at that point, they became the majority shareholder and technically parent company of Hudson Soft. But up until that point and continuing onwards, Hudson continued to publish games, but Konami would act as the distributor, at least inside of Japan. But 2011 is where everything shifts. They are now wholly owned by Konami. And in 2012, they ceased to exist and were merged into Konami Digital Entertainment. And we know what happens when things go there. (laughs) Pachinko machines! Well, they still claimed at the time that there were plans for both the Hudson name and their IPs, and the website for Hudson itself still existed. But it was retired in 2014, the name fell into disuse, the Hudson headquarters were sold in Japan, the building they'd existed in since the 1980s. Oh, that's sad. 
And the last kind of trough of titles published under the Hudson name were Japanese-only titles in 2012. They ceased to be. Hashtag great joke. There are a few games we didn't touch upon. First of all was uh, GB Caveman Land, which was a board game slash platform game for the Game Boy. That one just doesn't really fit in the main kind of timeline and canon of Bonk. Uh, the other is Bonk's Return for mobile platforms, which was from 2006. One of which is it's a mobile game from 2006. <laughs> Good luck finding that in 2023. No sound. It was, it was, <laughs> There's not much to it. <laughs> it was a remake of the first game. It was a relatively okay remake of the first game, albeit one that was designed for the mobiles of 2006. Work out how great that was. The other, which is slightly more interesting and could be considered a valid way to play a Bonk game, is in the GameCube and PlayStation 2 era, Hudson had this series called Hudson Selection. There were a number of volumes, and volume three was PC Genjin, where they didn't just go, oh, here's the game, we stick a ROM on a DVD or a GD ROM and call it a day. Mm. It was a case of, here is a remake. It was pretty faithful to the original, but with completely new 3D-rendered graphics like this is uh, we talked about other games being a bit like a yoshi's story or a yoshi's island this is way more like a yoshi's yeah. story very similar to kirby and the crystal shards that you got for the n64 that yeah sort of 2.5d experience uh bonk has a much kind of meaner look to it and also the kind of all the sound effects in addition to happening are kind of onomatopoeia they're spelt <laughs> out on the screen so when there's a bonk there's a bonk when there's a zap there's a zap have you heard the noise that he makes when he gets some meat he makes a shrill like it's like a... <laughs> it's I mean, to be odd fair, one i'm that's the noise i make when i get meat dude don't <laughs> don't shame there are some unlockables uh there are three different difficulties to play the game at and when you complete each difficulty it unlocks one of the original pc genjin japanese tv commercials which is that's actually lovely. how a lot of these commercials now exist on youtube because people just went yoink i'll grab those they're better than the vhs from 1989 thank you from us for doing that <laughs> the audio is also better as well <laughs> the other titles we didn't cover are of bonk's cousin zonk yeah, Zonk's a weird one, isn't it? Because they came out around the same time. They they were originally launched... When was it? 94? They originally launched in 1993, so as Super Air Zonk. And it, it's... It's Zonk, but Zonk is a little bit like Mega Man. It's got some of the same bosses and characters and badniks that you get with the Zonk, uh, with the Bonk games. God, this is going to get confusing. But it's like the power-ups and it's it's like one of those old-school shooters. It's an R-Type. It's a Gradius. Yeah, it's a Parodius. Literally, it's... I was going to say R-Type that was yeah. one of the biggest games for the uh, PC Engine. <laughs> also, despite being kind of a case of, well, let's make a new version of our mascot we'll call him pc denjin denjin means electric man slash humanoid robot oh wow so they've managed yeah i know the fact that Bravo. they had engine genjin denjin just the japanese language working in favor oh that is of glorious. these game devs 
it's not just a gimmick because much like PC Engine being a really polished platformer out of the gate, PC Engine is a really, really well-loved and liked game for the PC Engine. It's it's a really, really solid game, but it's not bonk. It's an adjacent to bonk, and I can't guarantee that we won't be talking about Zonk or PC Engine <laughs> somewhere down the line, possibly not in a focus episode, but I reckon there's a chance he will come up again, particularly as and when we come back around to Arenosan yeah. and Game Center CX. Bonk would continue to make appearances. I mean, he was never afraid of appearing as cameos in other Hudson titles. Uh, Saturn Bomberman had Bonk in it. <gasps> did I it? I actually remember. Yeah, he appeared uh, when we did the 10-player Bomberman Challenge at UCP Live 2. One of the people was playing as as Bonk. I want to say it might have even been the overall winner. Oh, my God. I did not know this. That person was... Why are we saying it like that? Harry was chasing me as that character. Why can I not remember it being a cave boy? Because I, I remember when I was trying to do commentary on that challenge, which was a challenge in itself. <laughs> one of the few ones I could say is like, oh, there's Bonk. I recognise Bonk. That's an easy one to delineate from every other character that's on the screen that's just a different shade of Bomberman. Maybe it was because I was part of the action that I didn't really pay attention to it. <laughs> other than that, Bonk has mainly appeared, again, still on the Nintendo platform. He was on the Wii U's virtual console because the PC Engine had virtual console titles under the Wii and Wii U, and those first uh, PC Engine titles were made available. And that was around 2016. Then we get to 2020 and the PC Engine Mini which originally had much grander plans, but then a couple of things happened, including the pandemic and manufacturing problems resulting for the pandemic, and eventually it became an Amazon exclusive. Mm -hmm. But it still sold well, and it still featured our little cave dude. But that console's no longer available. That one is now aftermarket prices. I actually looked it up, and I'm not going to lie, there is a temptation for me to sell my PC Engine Mini because... <laughs> is it going for a lot? Uh, upwards of £200. Oh, wowzers! This is now a case of if you want to play the PC Engine titles, your options are original hardware. And for original hardware, we could be talking a PC Engine, we could be talking a Famicom or a NES, we could be talking a Super Nintendo or a Super Famicom or a Game Boy. Probably the easiest to get hold of, I'd say, is definitely the first Game Boy title. That's the one that I see the most around the place. It's quite cheap, it's quite easy to get hold of, particularly if you're not worried about boxes. Mm -hmm. Then we get into the official mini console. We've just covered that, quite expensive. But to play most of these games at this point, you need to turn to emulation and you need to turn to ROMs. And it, like so many IPs owned by Hudson that aren't Bomberman, this just sits in a Konami vault. Sad. I, I was genuinely shocked when I was looking into this, when I'm going, there's, there's got to be a Hudson Soft collection. Because God knows, there are lots of Castlevania collections. There are lots of Contra collections. The Ninja Turtles have had an amazing mm. collection coming out of all the Konami games. Currently, Hudson's stuff and PC Genjin just sits in a vault somewhere. And it's a real shame. And maybe it's because it's legally complicated, because even though 
Konami own all of Hudson's IPs. There is still, where does Red's legal entitlement Mm. come into this? Where does Atlas come into this? Because Atlas are now owned by Sega. It's one of those minefields. It's, I wouldn't have said a couple years ago that we would ever see Goldeneye appear on any form of, uh, Nintendo Marketplace or Microsoft Marketplace because any any modern console no no because there are too many moving parts Rare Nintendo and obviously MGM and now or now Amazon yeah yeah I I never thought that I would ever see you know when people used to always bring it up to me and they still do now with Diddy Kong Racing and stuff like that and I'm like too many moving parts it's too many people that you would have to get on board with that. I really enjoyed that deep dive. I did as well. It made me a little sad because it reminds me of, you know, there were so many games franchises and I know we're going to talk about more of them on other deep dives that are just locked in vaults. Anything Psygnosis made. Lemmings. Yeah, Lemmings. Oh, but when you and Luke do your your emotional plea to get Alex Kidd out of the vaults, <laughs> we'll all be there listening to it. <laughs> Never happened. <laughs> But on that somewhat sombre note, I suppose we should wrap that up for this, our first UCP Focus. Thank you so much for listening, for lending your ears to this brand new format. And I'm sure we're going to tweak it a little bit as we go on. As the subject matters we cover differ, we may have different ways to approach things. And indeed, I'm hoping a couple of these UCP Focus episodes will actually just be full-on interviews. You know, just like a deep dive, one-on-one with someone else that's relevant to the primary UCP episode. Other than lending us your ears, the one thing that would help us so much at this point is like, rate, review, subscribe. These are brand new feeds. This is a brand new start. We need to get those rankings back up there. So if you can like us on Spotify, on iTunes, on Amazon Podcasts, Audible, wherever you're finding us, give us a thumbs up, preferably a thumbs up. If you want to give us a thumbs down, then, uh, you know you do you we won't think any less of you but we will cry just don't tag me and speaking of social media you can find us on twitter at under console pod or instagram and freds at under dot console and if you want to come and join some very lovely individuals who love the show love retro gaming love anything nostalgic from the worlds of the 90s the noughties and even for your older folk the 80s come and join our discord channel you can find the link to that lovely place in the description below and if you want to support us monetarily, give what you can, only if you can. Yes, Mr. Paul Gannon, I've stole that from you. You can do so over on our Patreon under console pod. Over on Patreon at all levels, you will get UCP Extra, where we cover period-appropriate bonus content, as well as Under Console Nation, our monthly community podcast. At the £5 level, you get the episodes early, uncensored, and always ad-free. At the £10 level, you get all that. You also get the chance to be part of our monthly Golden Joystick Raggler Waffle Calls, which will also then be made available later in playback for £10 and £5 backers. But... More important than all of that, Cliff, you get to be listed along with these fine folks. Mm -hmm. 
Andrew Greenwood, Arcadia Wild Bill, Chrissy Two Sticks, David Palmer, Gordon Aitken, Gordon Brandt, Gordon Dempster, Harriet Manga Girl, I Am Cheadle, Ian Williams, Jamie Smith, Joe McGonagall, Link Campbell, Mark A, Matty Boo, Misha Summer, Riss Wynn, Sean Dunn, Selena BN, Simon, Super Sexy Dave Fisher, Tom's Dylan McEvoy, Tom S. Wilsey, and Xanderthal. That is it, ladies and gentlemen, for our first UCP Focus. Come and join us if you are a Patreon for our UCN call, which will be on Tuesday the 23rd. And if you cannot make it the next Thursday, the audio will be available for everyone else. And for those fine folk that are not part of our Patreon, we shall see you in two weeks' time for the next UCP. P. And we shall catch you all very, very soon. Good night.